If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at verses 33 through 37 of Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Today we come to the fourth of six contrasts between what the people had been taught, what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had been teaching people in the synagogues, and what was originally intended by God when he gave the Old Testament, when he gave his law. Last week we looked at divorce and adultery, where the people had been taught a system which allowed for men to divorce their wives for any and and all causes. Jesus affirms marriage as God's original intent. God created marriage, man created divorce. It is worth noting, I didn't mention this last week, the importance that Jesus put on marriage. It's the place where he performed his first miracle, the marriage at Cana, where he turned water to wine. And then in various parables, it seems to be a recurring theme. You have the wedding feast in Matthew 22, the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25. And then there is the question of marriage after the resurrection, which comes up in Matthew 22. And then Jesus uses it as a metaphor. Um, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. As Jesus points out, there is one exception which allows for divorce, which was adultery or marital unfaithfulness. Now, what we saw last week, if divorce was allowed because of the hardness of the human heart, what we look at today, swearing or swearing oaths, is due to human untruthfulness, that people, generally speaking, do not always tell the truth. And if the rabbis were lenient and permissive in their attitude toward divorce, um, they were also permissive in their teaching about oaths and swearing. In the first three contrasts that we saw about murder and about lust and about adultery um, and divorce, they were all connected to commandments, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment. Today we come to something which is actually a sort of a summary of various commandments that God had given uh, throughout the Old Testament about oaths or swearing. Um, taking God's name in vain, for example, is the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And then in Deuteronomy 6, swearing by God's name, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Interesting enough, there is the command to take oaths in God's name. And then in Numbers 30, about making vows. When a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but he must do everything he said. So it is actually sort of a compilation, uh, a synthesis of these various commandments that Jesus addresses here in the fourth contrast. Um, And I think at first glance, this might seem to be the least important or perhaps least relevant of the commands that Jesus gives. I mean, after all, how can breaking your word 
compared to committing murder, for example. Um, I think the fact that Jesus includes it here tells us that it is, in fact, an important issue. Now, the problem is that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, had shifted their attention away from a vow, a promise, an oath, to the responsibility of keeping um, that oath. That it's, it's away from it, um, the fact that you're supposed to keep your word. And instead, they were more focused on the formula. How should you say, yeah, I'm going to keep my word? Or, yes, I'm telling the truth. Um, as we saw with the matter of divorce, Jesus will deal with this again later in the Gospel of Matthew. And let me just read it to you. It's from Matthew 23. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. So you say, I swear by the temple, this is true. It doesn't mean anything. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. In both passages, Jesus argues that the formula you use when you swear an oath is totally irrelevant. In the passage today, Jesus makes a distinction, or he speaks against the distinction, between swearing by God and swearing by anything else. See, the Pharisees said if you swore by anything else, you really didn't have to keep your word. But if you swore by God, then, then you had to keep your word. And Jesus points out this is totally artificial. This is a man-made system to get out of keeping your word. Because, well, I didn't really swear by the gold of the temple, I swore by the temple. So I'm not obligated to keep my word. The Pharisees said, if you swear by God, you, keep, you have to keep the oath. If you swear by heaven, if you swear by the earth, Jerusalem, your head, you didn't have to keep your promise. And by the way, hadn't people figured this out by now? If somebody, in fact, swears by heaven, like, well, okay, I don't think they're keeping their word. Because they didn't swear by God, they swore by heaven. Jesus sees the accompanying formula as meaningless. The fact is, you're supposed to keep your word. Why does Jesus see the formula as meaningless? Because everything is tied to God. You can say, well, if you swear to God, then you have to keep it. If you swear to heaven, nah, you don't have to. But God made the heavens and the earth. It is God's throne. If you swear by the earth, it is God's footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king. If you swear by your head, that is, in fact, God's creation. You are made in the image of God. You are to keep your word, period. Whatever promise you make, whatever oath you swear, when you give your word, you are to keep it. The window dressing around it is simply that. It is window dressing. I'm reminded, I don't know that this applies, but years ago my father was preaching in the Philippines and he was preaching in English and he had someone and interpreting for him into Ilohano. And um, at one point, uh, by the way, preaching oftentimes is not always associated with telling the truth, which is sad. But my father said, I'm here to tell you tonight that everything I'm telling you beyond a shadow of a doubt is absolutely true. 
so he looked at the guy and the guy said Pudnudaita that's it yeah because the guy said this is true that's it the window dressing is just window dressing either something is right or it's wrong you say yes or you say no you don't need to use flowery language to sort of dress it up Christian speech is to be marked by simplicity and by honesty we are to be honest we are to tell the truth and by the way I think if we tell the truth it does lead to simplicity it is dishonesty oftentimes that leads to not always but it can lead to flowery language and sort of this fancy window dressing the church will not be stable if our words cannot be trusted. But this raises, at least for me, several questions. As an American citizen in 2016, as a Christian, what does this mean to me? First of all, I want to know why did God swear oaths in Scripture? For example, to Abraham. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through, you, uh, through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God swore to Abraham. And as if to emphasize this, this is found in Genesis when it happened. In Hebrews, we read in Hebrews 6, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one for him to swear by, he swore by himself. There's no one greater. I mean, if you swear to God, I mean, who is God going to swear by? By himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. If you swear to God, then end of story. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So it would be clear that God was telling the truth. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Why did God swear an oath? If we are not to swear at all, why did God do it? It seems like a double standard. I would argue that God did not do this to increase his credibility. Oh, now we can believe God because he swore by himself. But in fact, to encourage our faith, to confirm our faith. See, the problem is not with God, the problem with, uh, is with us. That generally speaking, we do not always believe people when they tell us something unless they say, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. John Stott, who wrote on this, said, The fault which made God condescend on the human level, or to this human level, lay not in any untrustworthiness of his, because God cannot lie, but in our unbelief. So that Abraham would believe him, God swore an oath by himself. So, as I come to this passage today, why did God swear an oath? It is to confirm our faith. It is not because he is untrustworthy. We are unbelieving. He is completely trustworthy. But, 
what about us? Since God did it, can we do it? It seems to go contrary to what Jesus is saying. Is the prohibition that we find here in verse number 34, do not swear at all, absolute? I think we would agree that in everyday conversation, to use an oath to make a point is really unnecessary and wrong. If we say something, then that should be enough. We shouldn't have to dress it up uh, or swear or, or, or even use some profanity to, to make our point. Oftentimes profanity is done precisely for that reason, uh, to make the point. But what about if we go to court? Either you work on a jury or as a witness, or if you become a citizen, when you swear an oath to become a citizen of the United States, or when you're applying for a passport, or any type of legal transaction that requires, you know, raise your right hand and repeat after me. As a Christian, can I do that in good conscience, or will I, in fact, be violating what Jesus told us here? Do you swear that the information you, are given, you have given is true to the best of your knowledge, so help you God? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? We take this for granted. It's an American thing to do. It's, it's part of our system. And we may even take pride in it and, and imagine that it is sort of echoes of a Christian past. Um, but is it right? When we do this, do we in fact violate the command of Jesus? There are various aspects in the church tradition that have, in fact, taken this literally. The Anabaptists in the 16th century, the Quakers even today, uh, will not swear oaths. So this is not something we can just say, well, don't, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It, it sort of is. Okay? When Jesus was put on trial before his death, he was put on trial before the Sanhedrin. This is recorded in Matthew. Jesus remained silent. He did not say anything until the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. See, either Jesus should not have answered or he should have said, listen, I'm not saying anything because you, you said an oath and I, I'm not going to do anything under oath. But Jesus' actions, I think, at his trial teach us the truth of the matter. It's not just, oh, this is what happened to Jesus before he died. There is a principle here for us to embrace. And that is when people in authority put us under oath. When you go to court or any situation, legal situation, where you have to swear to tell the truth, I think we can, in fact, do as Jesus did and reply as simply as possible and say, yes, I, I swear to tell the truth. So if we're asked to swear to tell the truth in court or whatever, we may do so without violating the command of Jesus in this passage. The Reformation really dealt with this, I think, at length. And the various creeds of the Reformation stress this point, that if legal authorities, if people over us require of us that we swear an oath to tell the truth, then we are obligated as God's people to do so. The 39 Articles of the Church of England, which was originally written in 1562, in the final article, the 39th, of a Christian man's oath, as we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden Christian men, that is, Christian people shouldn't swear, uh, you know, vain and rash swearing, by our Lord Jesus Christ and James his Apostle, so we judge that Christian religion does not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requires it. In, case, in a case of faith, 
or in a cause of faith and charity, so it be done according to the prophet's teaching in justice, judgment, and truth. The Heidelberg Catechism, which came uh, several years later, actually the next year, question 101, may we not swear oaths by the name of God in a devout manner? Yes, when the civil authorities require it of their subjects. That is, in a legal setting, when there's a judge, when there's someone who's saying, do you swear to tell the truth? Then as God's people, as American citizens here in 2016, we may in fact do that. Something else. What Jesus is speaking about here is to the people who are his people, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is the good news. He's laying it out. This is what he expects of his people. He is not speaking to civil authorities. He's not speaking to the state. Jesus tells us that in Christian conversation, we are to say yes when we mean yes and say no when we mean no. We are not to swear our oaths. But he does not outlaw civil oaths. That is, when you go to court, for example. So in chapter 22, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. This is really important and it will be important. We will see, Lord willing, next week in the next in the next uh, contrast that Jesus is addressing us as individuals and not the state. So when he tells us to turn the other cheek, he's not saying that the state, well, the state's supposed to turn it. No, the state has the sword. They are to keep law and order. We, as citizens, cannot take the law into our own hands. In the same way, he is speaking to us in this passage, and we, in fact, are not in day-to-day conversation to use oaths, but the state may require us to do so, and we can do so. And it's a critical point, because we, uh, in a fallen world with fallen humanity, oaths oftentimes are necessary in a legal setting. That is, if a person's word is unreliable, it is admission of failure of truthfulness in the human race. By the way, traditionally in this country, perjury was a big deal. You could go to prison for perjury. And what is perjury? When you swear to tell the truth and you don't tell the truth, you've broken the law. And there are, or there used to be severe consequences to that. So, what is the point of the commandments? We are, in fact, to be simple in our speech. We are to tell the truth. Our yes is to be yes and our no, no. We are to tell the truth. And as Jesus said, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So what are we to do? Here we are. Um, What are we to do about what Jesus commands here? Let me give you some suggestions. The first, I think, I almost do not mention because it is... It's stretching it a bit to even get to that. And that is that we are to avoid profanity and vulgarity. It's the least important, I think, here. I don't think it's necessarily what Jesus has in mind. Um, But I think in simplicity of speech, oftentimes profanity is used as window dressing to sort of make a point. Um, It should be avoided. We hear it every day. I think it's in our brains, whether we like it or not. Uh, We need to guard our speech. We need to be careful when we talk. The second thing is we, we should avoid oaths. We should not, in our conversation with one another, say things like, I swear to you, I'm telling the truth. Um, people should know us as truth tellers. That when we tell the truth, or when we speak, people know that we're telling the truth. 
We shouldn't need anything else to sort of encourage them to believe us. They should, in fact, believe us. As the people of God, truthfulness should mark us, and it should mark the church as well. Now, there was a time in this culture when a person's word was their bond, or so we are told. Um, After a while, that didn't become enough, and so then it had to be a contract, and signing a contract. Well, now we know that you can get a lawyer and get out of almost anything. Um, In a culture marked by untruthfulness, we are to be truth-tellers. And that should mark us as the people of God. We claim to have the truth, don't we? Then, then we should be truth-tellers. I think the third thing is that we should pursue simplicity in speech. It is our conversation should be marked by honesty and simplicity. And as I said earlier, honesty leads to simplicity. In Craig's Catechism from 1581, question, what is the end of this commandment, this particular commandment? And the answer is that the simple truth remain among us. This leads to the next question, and perhaps it should have been mentioned earlier, but what about the use of language in the arts? In literature, words are the material which a writer uses to create images, convey ideas, stories, and more. I would argue that the statement of Jesus, let your simple, or simply let your yes be yes and your no, no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one, doesn't, is not, Jesus is not talking about the arts, but about the individual in his or her conversation with truthfulness. In other words, that our word can be trusted. In Jesus' way of teaching, Jesus, in fact, used hyperbole, for example, extreme exaggeration. And someone might say, well, wait a minute, you said yes, yes, no, no. He's talking about being truthful. Some have, in fact, insisted, and I remember being taught as I was growing up, that the parables must, in fact, be true stories. That Jesus would never tell a story of fiction because fiction is a lie it's not true and it violates this and so everything that Jesus used in a parable uh, was true Um, I don't agree I don't agree Um, consider the parable of the unmerciful servant in which a servant is called to repay what he owes the master 10,000 talents How much is a talent? Well, the ESV, the English Standard Version, has a very helpful note. A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. That's what you earn in 20 years. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of labor. How can a servant possibly incur such a debt? Um, I think it's safe to say that Jesus is using hyperbole. He's trying to make a point the point of the impossibility of the debt being repaid so that when the master forgives the debt, it is a remarkable act of grace. There's no way this guy could have ever paid it back. That's the point. Jesus doesn't intend us to take the parable. Well, this has to be literally true because Jesus would never use a fictive uh, account of or an incident to make a point. I think that's you're missing what he's saying here. The use of metaphors, the use of similes, descriptive language is not forbidden. Literature should have a place, I think, in the Christian heart. Fiction, satire, allegory, and so much more. By the way, in the 19th century, 
there was sort of a move in the Christian church away from fiction. Um, Charles Finney said, that, you know, if you read novels, there was something obviously wrong with you. He said, let me come to your house and see what books you have. Um, and I can tell you the state of your heart. Um, no, I, I, I think... Well, I'm not unbiased in the matter. I love fiction. I love to read. Um, and I love descriptive language. And I don't think it is forbidden by this passage. Titus has pointed out to us in, in his series on the Songs of Ascent that Hebrew poetry uses a lot of repetition. That is something is said in one line and then it's said in a different way in the line that follows. It's like, why are you repeating yourself? Isn't this like violating the yes, yes, the no, no? Why do you keep, keep saying it over and over again? Um, no, the issue is not truthfulness. The issue is description. A, a painting is being created in our minds, a mental picture. Psalm 14, why was it, O sea, that you fled, O Jordan, that you turned back? You mountains that you skip like rams, you hills like lambs. Well, hills don't skip like lambs, but you get the point, don't you? Don't you see a picture in your head? In Psalm 98, let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the river clap their hands, let them sing before the Lord. Well, rivers don't clap their hands, they don't sing. Well, have a little imagination. And imagination is not forbidden in the passage that we see here today. This takes us one step further. I don't want to go too far. But when it comes to the visual arts, to drawings or paintings, the issue may come up whether or not they must be representational. Well, as I've been reminded by my sister-in-law who painted this, all art, in fact, is representational. It represents something. Okay. Um, We cannot come up with a theology of painting based on this passage. The point here is trustworthiness. People swear oftentimes because they're not telling the truth. Or they swear because they've been known not to tell the truth in in the past and now they want to know that, yes, I am. On this one occasion, I happen to be telling the truth. People are liars and cannot be trusted. And yet, if someone says, I swear to you, then suddenly we feel pushed into a corner that we have to believe what they say. Jesus calls us to be people of our word. That others can be confident that when we say something, it is in fact the truth. We are to be careful with what we say. In chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus tells us, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, I've mentioned to several people here in, in the past that you know, I used to think that this really didn't seem possible. This, this seemed almost like hyperbole that, that Jesus is engaged in here. But you know what? With the rise of technology and various recording devices and the internet and social media in which it seems that people's words go everywhere. Yeah, this doesn't seem so far-fetched anymore. We are to be careful what we say. One last thing. Why does God care so much about our words? What is the big deal? Well, a couple things come to mind. First of all, God is a speaking God. From the beginning, God spoke when he said, Let there be light. 
And then he instructed Adam, giving him instructions. This is what he was to do. He communed with Adam in the cool of the day. And then he questioned him, what have you done? And then he judged them. And he exiled them with words. But even with the chasm between God and humanity, God continues to reveal himself speaking to us with words. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament and he is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Bible is called the Word of God. It is verbal communication from the infinite personal God. Verbal communication that we have as human beings is a part of what it means to be made in God's image. There are other forms of communication, by the way, nonverbal. That's not a problem. God reveals himself not only by speaking, but in creation. The heavens reveal his glory. Okay. But in our verbal communication, I would say in all our communication, but particularly here we see in verse 34, we are in fact to be truthful in what we say. We are to be people who speak the truth. And secondly, God is holy. God speaks the truth. I read to you earlier from Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we are his people, we are to speak the truth. We are not to lie. We are to be marked by honesty and simplicity. And I think every generation has its struggles. I think this is one for us today, um, in which being a truth teller is not necessarily prized. Simplicity in speech is not prized. But we are the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a culture that does not seem to prize truthfulness. And yet, oftentimes, is very offended when people don't tell the truth in certain situations. It seems that in some circumstances it's okay to lie, in others it's not. May we see from what Jesus says that as your people who belong to the kingdom of heaven, we are to tell the truth. We are to be truth-tellers. We are made in your image, but we, because of sin, have strayed and drifted so far. But as your spirit works in our lives, may we, in fact, be people of truth. And in our conversations, on some level, be marked by honesty and simplicity. I thank you for the gift of language and for the wonderful pictures that language can paint, for stories, for poetry, for various works of fiction that enrich us as human beings. I thank you. But may we not forget to be truth-tellers. The church of this generation has much to answer for. 
and I suspect that one of those things is that it has been less than truthful. We ask your forgiveness and ask that by your grace we would be marked by the truth. I thank you for bringing us together today. Keep us on this hot day. Keep us safe. And may we find rest in you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.